Father, thank you for this morning that we can be here once again. Thank you for the, the fellowship that we have with one another. Thank you for the weekly gathering that we get to participate in. Thank you for how you use this to keep us uh, drawing near to you regularly, how you remind us of our identity through this, uh, not only that, but also our, our obligations and our privileges as Christians. And we pray that you would help us as we consider further this morning how we might make decisions, in particular in areas that are not uh, explicitly commanded one way or another. We pray that you would give us grace, that you would help us to adopt the mindset that we find in Scripture concerning uh, how we ought to imitate Christ. We pray that you give us wisdom in searching these things out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, once again, the uh, outline that is back there is the same as last week. We're uh, taking it up once again and planning to continue it uh, just for this morning. And then uh, next week, we will have one final session of this decision-making class before we move on uh, to a new subject. So we are uh, in this decision-making and the conscience section. Uh, just to catch you up if you weren't here or to bring you back and reorient you even if you were, we talked about decision-making and the conscience and uh, things that we sometimes call conscience matters. Uh, some things that we refer to as conscience matters are in fact that. They are matters that involve our conscience where we would uh, believe ourselves to be doing something sinful. It would violate our conscience if we were to do them, even if it's not explicitly commanded in Scripture that we do or do not do that thing. And uh, even if other people may not have the same convictions about that, there is such a thing as being uh, obligated to not violate your conscience, even when your conscience is a little bit more constrained than the Word of God requires it to be. And one of those examples was what we looked at last week in Romans 14. There were certain types of foods, uh, certain types of things that you could uh, drink or not, and even certain days to observe that people coming in particular out of a Jewish background would have had a tendency to, to uh, hold on to, and they may have been convinced that they needed to continue to do those, not because they were trying to earn God's favor or earn righteousness before God or to, um, or even to, uh, in particular, to become saved by doing those things, but simply because they thought that they needed to do that. Paul calls this a weaker faith because they have not completely embraced what God has said about how permitted those matters are. And yet he doesn't say that they need to, uh, that they must change that or that they must do so right away. Uh, he implicitly encourages it in other places. But he says that believers are to be unified despite these things. And we are to consider the consciences of others when we make our decisions and we are also if we are in the place where we have a conscience that more strongly holds to certain things that are not necessarily biblically required we need to be careful that we don't judge people who don't share the same convictions as we do uh, so those are just some of the things that we looked at now we also discussed the matter that what we sometimes call conscience matters are actually very often matters of simple disagreements of opinion or disagreements of judgment things that we think are best or the, uh, the way that we would apply certain commands or act in wisdom that might be dis, uh, uh, in disagreement with other people, that might be different than other people, something that they would do that we would not do because they think it's the best course of action and we don't, uh, or the way that we do something and they wouldn't do it because we think it's the best course of action and they don't. This is the kind of thing that really, if you have a, uh, a functioning understanding of the scripture and you have a proper a proper kind of freedom and a proper kind of unity and love for one another in the church. This is the kind of thing that honestly should be happening a lot. 
where you just have different opinions about certain things that are not biblically required opinions and where you have people practicing different ways of applying the timeless, unchanging, unified truths of the Bible. So the way that they might try to honor God and carry out the Great Commission and disciple other people and participate in the ministry of the church um, will look different in its detailed application, not in the principles behind it, not in the theology behind it, but in the specific outworking of that. It will look very different for different people. We don't want to let that become a cover for sin. We don't want to let that become a cover for just disregarding uh, what Scripture states clearly or even the things that Scripture implies. And it is very easy to just say we're free in Christ. We can do whatever we want. Scripture doesn't give us that degree of freedom, but it does give us some degree of freedom. And we ought to remember that we are going to be different and going to look different than other Christians, even in our own congregation, in certain ways that are the surface level outworking of our Christian faith, even as we hold tightly and should hold tightly to the same convictions more and more when it comes to what the Bible teaches and requires of us. So there, uh, that's kind of where we were last week. We talked about conscience matters, matters that truly involve the conscience, and then matters that we sometimes call conscience matters, but that are matters of wisdom and opinion. Um, I want to look this morning at 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, which we didn't really get to last time, and just do a survey of this section of Scripture because it uh, contains in it a number of principles, and you actually should have those principles already spelled out for you in the notes, actually explicitly uh, written there. Just uh, if you want to fill in the blanks and you don't have those from last time, the, uh, the two key passages about conscience matters, you have Romans 14, 1 through 15, 7, and you have 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. So if you want to turn there, we will follow along. Background to 1 Corinthians, Paul has been to that church and he has written to them at least one initial letter in chapter 5 uh, about not associating with immoral people, particularly in the church. He addresses some uh, some matters of the situation in Corinth in chapters 1 through 6. And then when he gets to chapter 7, he begins to address matters that they had written to him about in response to their letter. Chapter 7, concerning the things about which you wrote. And he begins to address the matter of, uh, of marriage, of men and women relating to one another, of getting married or not, of what to do in particular situations and circumstances. Uh, and then, among other things that he addresses, in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, he addresses the subject of things sacrificed to idols. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols. This is really an exposition on that. It's, well, not so much an exposition, but it is, uh, it's instructions concerning that. And there are a lot of theological points that he makes, a lot of direct instructions and commands that he gives, and then a lot of principles that they're supposed to use as they think about how they ought to relate to these things. There was some controversy in the Corinthian church, evidently, about how to relate to things that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, in the Old Testament and in the New, the, the pagan nations around Israel uh, had, of course, sacrificed things to idols. Israel sacrificed to their God, the one true God, and the, uh, the other nations made sacrifices to their false gods. So it, this was ongoing as well at the time that the church was started, and this was big in Corinth as it was in many places throughout the Roman Empire and throughout where the early church had spread. So things sacrificed to idols were going on in Corinth. Uh, it was all over the place, and it seems that you were going to be able to get... Uh, you would be able to go and to eat meat 
that had been sacrificed to idols. Um, certainly you could go participate in the feast itself, which would be participating in sinful worship, but you could also get the meat that had been sacrificed to idols and uh, you could buy it after the fact. You could obtain that food and you could eat it even though it had been sacrificed to idols. And so you weren't directly participating in the religious ceremony necessarily by eating that food, but you were, uh, you were eating meat that potentially you know, had this uh, religious activity that had gone on in the process of it getting from the animal being alive to on your kitchen table. So this is the issue here. And some people were struggling with this uh, because as you'll see, uh, some of them knew, hey, this is... This was coming from exactly where I used to be involved, and I don't like it, and I struggle with this. And he talks about how we should think about it. So we'll just read through this, and I'll draw out some principles as we go. Um, 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Right from the beginning, he lays out the governing principle, and you have this on your handout, which is love. The governing principle in making decisions about this is love. It is not just the facts that you know. It is not your freedoms that drive everything. It is love. He says, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. There is an important point to make here as something of an aside, or at least just making sure we don't misunderstand or misconstrue what Paul says. There are a lot of people who think that love is all that matters, uh, that we don't need to do anything that really focuses on gaining knowledge, that you know, we need to just stop worrying about knowing so much and we need to just start loving and doing and we need to just take action and we need to just care for people and love God and love our neighbor. This is not a passage that is saying knowledge itself uh, in every way, in every circumstance, makes arrogant. This very instruction about knowledge and love is a piece of knowledge. The things that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 and 10, and the gospel message that he preached to them is knowledge. But knowledge alone is the problem. Knowledge makes arrogant. Knowledge for knowledge's sake that does not get turned into love that doesn't get exercised by loving other people, that is used to love oneself rather than to love God and to love one's neighbor as itself, that is the kind of knowledge that makes arrogant. And it is true that people can very much be into theology and you can love to just learn and learn and learn what the Bible says and just listen to sermons and read books. But what are you actually doing with that? If you're not actually practicing an edifying love toward other people within the body of Christ, then you are functionally becoming arrogant, regardless of what you may think about yourself. So knowledge itself makes arrogant, but love edifies. Love is built on the foundation of that knowledge. It cannot come apart from that knowledge. 1 Timothy 1.5 says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And then Paul gives a number of chapters on actually instructing the church and how the church should conduct itself and the sound doctrine that's necessary for that. So he's not against knowledge, but he is against knowledge that does not work itself out in love within the church. If you want to, uh, one more uh, passage to just drive that home, uh, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but... Through love, serve one another. 
For the whole law is fulfilled in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so then, those are verses 1 through 3. Uh, we go on and he addresses the specific issue. Therefore concerning, uh, verse 4, 1 Corinthians 8. Therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. So he lays down the theological truth. These idols are not actually real. There is no such thing as another God. There may be many uh, there may be many names of other gods that are worshipped by people. There may be many uh, pieces of metal or wood or stone that are worshipped by other people, but that doesn't mean that they're actually gods. There is only one. And he says the theological truth, the reality is that there is only one God. And yet, verse 7, however, not all men have this knowledge. Not all men understand these things as clearly and and uh, with this degree of conviction even, and not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So not everybody uh, can look at an idol and say, you know, I know that's just food, and I know that's not really an idol, and I'm not actually worshiping or participating in worship when this happens. Not everybody can say that. So he goes on, and he lays out some ways to think about this. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. Why is it that big of a deal if you get to exercise this freedom to eat this particular thing? And this is not a priority in the same way as caring for the souls of your brethren. Because food is not going to make us more commended to God or not. And withstaining, uh, or abstaining from food is not going to keep make us more commendable to God. He says, but there is a warning, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This is the concern that he has. If someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, you, the one who knows that this idol isn't real, and you're saying, well, it doesn't matter. I'm not worshiping this idol at all. I'm just eating this food. It's just food that comes from God. It's an idol that's not real. But he sees this. And if he sees this, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Okay, I want you to notice something here. Uh, we often use the word uh, stumbling a brother, okay, or causing a brother to stumble. When we say that word, there are two ways that that actually, or that phrase, there's kind of two directions that we can go with it. What's going on here? What does it mean? Just like summarize, paraphrase, what does it mean to cause a brother to stumble in a matter like this, a matter of conscience or a matter of liberty or freedom? What are you doing if you are causing them to stumble? Okay, you know it's against their conscience. You're deliberately eating the meat. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the start. Okay, so what, on top of that, what is happening 
Why does this make them stumble? Okay, so you're trying to draw them in or get them to do it. Yeah, and in this case, it may not be that you are intentionally doing it. It's not like, and sometimes it might be, because sometimes we just say, hey, man, it's fine. It's not a big deal. It's not, you know, an idol is nothing. And we want them to participate in it because we don't want to give up our freedom or we enjoy that particular thing and we'd love for them to be with us. But other times it might be that you're just not really thinking about them. And you go and you do this thing and you don't really care. And then they... You're like, well, I know that they don't have this thing, but I, I know they don't have the freedom to do it. Maybe you're even aware of that. But you don't really give much consideration to that and how this would affect them. So functionally what you're doing is you are enticing or encouraging them to do something that violates their conscience. They are the one doing the thing that violates their conscience. And that is the issue here. That is the issue. And we want to be very careful with this because many times this concept this, uh, this passage and this idea of causing your brother to stumble has been used by people with consciences that are weak to tell other people that they can't practice Christian freedom because merely observing them doing it is an offense to them. And that when you see someone dining in an idol's temple, you're, you are caused to stumble, not because you're tempted to do it, but because you see them doing something that you're not willing to do. This is really nothing more than legalism. That's all that is. That's legalism and judgmentalism. And this, is, this kind of concept is used to justify that and to say, you're causing me to stumble. No, uh, just causing you to wrestle through the fact that you're willing to judge people for something that actually is not biblically forbidden. So this is where Romans 14 comes in. But just be careful when you talk about someone else being caused to stumble. Very often that is the, the concern. Oh, you can't do that. That'll cause somebody else to stumble. Well, what do you mean? Well, they're offended by your choices. Well, are they tempted to do it? No. Well, then what's going on? What's going on is they just don't like it. They're uncomfortable with it. But they, they want to hold that over you uh, for whatever reason that might be. So be careful you don't use it in that way. With that said, this is a very real danger in the Christian life. That people can just brazenly go and do what they know, and there's more coming later because it's not just as simple as, well, this is a freedom and I can do it. But uh, what they know to be permitted biblically, and they don't really consider how this might affect somebody else in the church. They don't think about it. And they go and they set this poor example without considering the weakness of their brother, and then the other person goes, well, this must be okay. I mean, this other Christian's doing it, and they're a mature person. They're a godly man. They're a godly woman, and they do this thing. Uh, it must be fine for me, too, but their conscience has not been properly prepared. They follow by example, not out of conviction that it's okay. And so their conscience is wounded when it is weak, and you sin against Christ. You sin against this brother for whose sake Christ died, verse 11, and then you sin against Christ. Paul then says, well, look, I know where my priorities are, verse 13. If food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. If that's what it takes, I'm willing to do that. And this ought to be the attitude that we share, where we love other people more than we love ourselves in this way, that we are willing to give up anything if that's what it takes to actually love our brethren. Certainly, we can go overboard in one sense and start to just literally give up everything 
just on the speculation that somebody might have a problem with it. And in that case, you, uh, well, it wouldn't even be safe to not get out of bed in the morning because somebody might think that that's wrong too. Uh, you, have to you, you have to be wise about this and not go to those kinds of um, extremes. However, we ought to be willing to go to the extreme of giving up anything if that's what it takes. If we know this could become an issue for someone else and this is going to be an issue and we know someone and we see this, uh, our willingness needs to be at any time. You know, if this thing is going to cause a problem, you know, I'd rather just not do it. I'm willing to give that up. So that's chapter eight. Um, love is the driving principle in all of this. Love for your brother, love for your fellow believers in Christ, uh, out of a love for Christ and a knowledge of his love for them. Questions, comments on chapter eight before we keep moving on? Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So in certain circumstances, like like wearing a, a skirt in a certain type of church that would like require that, or where it would be a scandal in people's minds to do that. Yeah. Uh, so th- there's going to be some wisdom involved in exercising some of that. Let me give you a couple of different places. So in in Galatians two, um, Paul says. So in Galatians, he is writing to these Gentile believers to say, people have convinced you to go back under the law, and that's what you need to do. And they were never under the law itself, but they were under similar types of religion. He calls them elemental or elementary principles of the world, uh, elemental things, Galatians 4, 9. And he says, you're not supposed to do that. And if you go under the law after you've been placed into Christ, then you're basically functionally saying, I need the law for righteousness. And he was worried about what that said about their faith at all and their salvation. Just context. Um, In Galatians 2, he goes up to Jerusalem. He's trying to prove in the first two chapters of Galatians that he didn't get his message from any human source. It came straight from God. And all that the people did in Galatians 2, the the leaders of the Jerusalem church who were kind of ministering to the Jews, all they did was verify and validate and affirm what was already going on. So when... when he goes there in Galatians 2, verse 2, it was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. He was a Greek, but even though he was not compelled to be circumcised, so he wasn't required to come under this Jewish law. Uh, it was because of this false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. So what you have in this case is people saying, you must do this. This is a requirement. And if you don't, then this is, uh, it, it's wrong. You have to, the, these Galatian false teachers were saying, tell these people, even though they're Gentiles, that they've got to follow the law of Moses. And Paul said, no, that undermines the gospel. Now, On the uh, sort of a flip side of this, in Acts 16, you have Timothy, who also was with Paul. He was half Jewish. His, uh, it says in uh, Acts 16:1, he was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Acts 16:3, Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. 
Now, whether this was because he maybe should have had that happen when he was younger or not, he knew that this was going to be a stumbling block to the Jewish men among them. But there wasn't anyone who was, uh, who was coming and saying, you know, you've got to do this in order to, not only because you're a Christian, but to keep the law. This was going to be a stumbling block to preaching the gospel in some way or another because uh, Paul determined this was just going to, it was just going to look bad and this, is, this could be a problem. So in this case, he's like, okay, I'm actually going to do this. This is not violent. He had already established the principle uh, in Galatians 2. We are not going to yield to the legalistic uh, requirements that other people would place upon us that violate the gospel. Evidently, he didn't see that as the case for Timothy. And Timothy, of course, was half Jewish, so that would be perfectly appropriate for him as well. Uh, so he, he's kind of taking both of these things and he's considering, what's the impact this is going to have on the gospel? How is this going to hinder my ability to actually preach to people? Will they listen to me when I do this? Now, we're going to get here in a moment into 1 Corinthians 9 as well, and he's going to talk about how he thinks about that. But there is wisdom in not shaking things up just to shake things up. And I think this is kind of along the lines maybe of what you're going for here. Um, there may be people, and this is my long, long way of getting there, but th there may be people who uh, may have either requirements or they may be kind of on the fence about things that, okay, maybe this isn't wrong, but I kind of feel like it's wrong. And if you walk in as just basically an iconoclast trying to just, you know, tear down every idol and every false view or whatever right away, well, okay, that may be, you, you may be permitted to do that, but is that going to be the most impactful thing to, uh, to for unity in the church and for building relationships and for um, actually winning a hearing to be able to show people that maybe this isn't the case, that you shouldn't be following these things in particular. So I think there's some wisdom in just saying, look, I'm not going to walk in and scandalize everybody by violating all of their norms, even if they're extra biblical norms. Um, at the same time, there is a place for not letting those uh, people dictate what you do. So it's going to depend upon the setting, like how much, uh, how much influence do you have there? How much are people willing to listen to you? Um, is this, uh, what, what degree of, of a problem is this? How strongly do they hold to this? Uh, there's going to be a lot of factors, but I do think it is a wisdom judgment call that ought to be made, and you should consider those kinds of things, while just making sure you don't, on the one side, compromise the gospel, but on the other hand, you don't care about um, what people think at all, and you just kind of go do whatever you're going to do. So that long-winded way of kind of trying to, to give some principles for that. Is, uh, is that addressing what you're asking about? Okay, okay. Well, okay, other things, follow-ups on, on that or on anything that we've looked at in 1 Corinthians 8. No? Okay, well, let's keep going in chapter 9. Uh, the next principle is not just love, but the gospel. The gospel. Driving principle here is, your freedom may be real, but the gospel is more important. Your freedom may be real, but the gospel is more important. Let me just read you what Paul says about his rights and how he thinks about that in terms of gospel ministry. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord, like the Corinthian church? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter? Or do, not, or, or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? In other words, are we the only ones that don't get to be supported financially to do our gospel ministry without having to take up another job? Are, are the other apostles the only ones who get to do that and we don't? Uh, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the fruit of it? Who tends the flock 
and doesn't use the milk of the flock. He's beginning to talk about how he has a right to be supported um, in this gospel work, but he has chosen not to do so. Uh, I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God isn't concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used none of these things. Okay, what's going on here? Well, hopefully it's pretty clear, but Paul is just making a very detailed case that someone who preaches the gospel, and and this is their uh, vocation, that assuming it's possible and that the money is there, should get their living from the gospel. This is perfectly appropriate for someone doing this work to be able to make a living off of doing this. Uh, All the caveats about greed and misusing things that the Bible lays out are here, obviously, in the background. But here he's just saying the principle is, uh, if you do the work, then is it wrong to expect to be paid for that? But he says, I'm not writing these things so that you'll do it for me. I am doing, I'm letting you know this because I want you to see something. I have chosen not to take advantage of that freedom. And I'm doing so because I care more about not causing an offense and a stumbling block to people hearing the gospel than I do about getting paid or having an easier life for doing this. And you see this in Paul's life, how it says in 1 Thessalonians 2, working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. He went and he worked in Acts 18 with Prisca and Aquila. And it was only when some support came from the Philippian church that uh, he was able to start dedicating himself full time to the message of the word of God, both in studying it and in preaching it instead of having to work uh, alongside of that another job. So Paul was very careful about doing this. He, he wanted to make sure that he was not getting in the way of this at all. This was his judgment. He had the freedom not to operate that way. And the other apostles evidently did operate uh, in this other way where they made their living from the gospel. He says, no problem, but I have chosen a different course. And he says in verse 15, I'm not writing these things so that it will be done. So in my case, for it'd be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Why is he saying that? Because God has specifically told Paul, you must go preach the gospel. That's why woe is him if he doesn't preach the gospel. He has a stewardship that he has been given. He must do this as his vocation, whether or not he gets paid for it. He has to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. God has specifically commanded him. But he says, if I do it voluntarily, then I have this sort of additional reward. In verse 18, what is the reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. His reward is being able to not make full use of his freedoms. That's perspective, isn't it? We ought to see that as a reward ourselves. 
Well, notice why he does this, the benefits of him being willing to give up his freedoms. For though I'm free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. What is his goal? Bringing people to salvation. And so even though I'm free from all men, I don't have to do, I don't have to worry about the consciences of other people in and of themselves because other people don't judge my conscience. I stand or fall before the Lord. As long as I obey the commands of Scripture, then I don't have to be bound by those things. But I know if I don't consider them and if I don't operate based upon knowing that other people have these conscience matters, then I'm not going to win as many people to Christ. Like that's his priority. So he says, to the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not myself being under the law. So that I might win those who are under the law. You recall him going up to uh, Jerusalem and he goes up and he pays his vow and he does everything according to the law. He doesn't do anything wrong. Of course, it's still, he still gets arrested. And he still gets persecuted by the Jews because, hey, you were with a Greek in the temple. Well, he didn't do anything wrong. So it didn't always work out this way because people are misunderstanding him. But he said, I'm not going to walk in to a Jewish synagogue and say, hey, you know what? I'm not under the law. Let me, uh, you guys, you want to see me eat bacon? You know, you want to watch me eat some stuff that's uh, forbidden under the law? I'm free to do that. And they would say, you get out of here. So he's, he's careful to not just needlessly offend people. Uh, verse 21, to those who are without law as without law. So he goes to people that don't have the law to Gentiles and, says, and he lives uh, not according to the customs of the Jewish law. He had that freedom to do that. He says, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. This is his priority. I am willing to give up my freedoms. I'm willing to walk in among these people and to act like them in these ways or to give up the things that they don't do. And I'm willing to go here. And if they have these customs, okay, I'll go along. I'm not just going to go tell them you don't have to do that. I'm willing to do this stuff so that I might save some people. One um, caveat to this, and then I want to just ask maybe you to think of some examples of what this might look like. Uh, he is very careful earlier in this book to say that this is not the same thing as doing what other people want all the time. He, it is not the same thing as becoming exactly what someone would want you to become or becoming like them in every way in order to appeal to them. There is this misconception that all things to all men means that you literally become like the world in every way except for things that are explicitly forbidden and sinful and that by becoming like them, then you're going to win them to the gospel. There is really no need to do that. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 1, there are certain ways where he says, I'm, I'm not going to become like you. Uh, he talks about the way that he preached. He says... In chapter 2, verse 1, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Why? Because you weren't able, Paul? No. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. 
This was an intentional choice on Paul's part not to go about preaching the gospel in the form that they wanted it in that day. The, the entertaining, uh, wisdom type of speech that was their, uh, their kind of entertainment and was very impressive to them. He says, I chose to speak a different way, not to get involved in doing this and mirroring the way that the culture wanted this done because I didn't want you to like me because I was like you. I didn't want you to believe the gospel because I was like your cultural things. And so when you see uh, people trying to, you know, hey, I, I like all the same movies as you. Yeah, I like all the same sports as you. I like all the same beers as you. I, you know, I like all the same coffees as you do. And I wear the same clothes. And yeah, we, we like these same politicians. Yeah, we're just like you, you know. Why don't you become a Christian? When you see people doing that, that's not what's meant by all things to all men. What he's saying is, I'm willing to give up the things that I would prefer to do or I would like to do. This is not about adding things that are impressive. This is about taking away things that are a hindrance. So in light of that, what are some ways that this might show up in 2023, Knoxville, Tennessee? What are some things where you might become like the weak or you might become all things to all men in a certain way? What are some things that you have seen other people do? What are some things where you've had to work through this? Any examples you can think of how this, the gospel might be uh, made a little bit less of a stumbling block by you not being the stumbling block and being willing to give up your liberties? Can you think of anything? Yeah, Michael. Yeah, yeah. So there, there is a uh, there's a a very um, thin line between and uh, the idea. So we're worried about what people think about us, and we are maybe afraid to do this kind of thing. If we're thinking rightly, we're afraid to do this kind of thing because we're worried about pleasing people, basically. Um, so in let's see, at the end of chapter ten, verses thirty-two and thirty-three. He says, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things. Now, Paul is saying that. Think about that. Paul is saying, I please all men in all things. And here is the guy that, that over and over again is saying, I am not a man pleaser. Am I preaching? I mean, in Galatians 1, he says, if I was trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. But he says, uh, just as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Okay, this is a great, um, I mean, this is a, it's a subtlety, it's a nuance, but it's a really important one. I'm glad you mentioned this, Michael, because 
uh, there's a way in which we can try to make everybody like us for the sake of our own safety and our own um, reputation and our own uh, blessing. Things that basically our own circumstances. We can have people uh, that approve of us. We can be well-liked. Our life can be more comfortable in many ways if we can avoid giving offense. And that is one motivation that subtly resides within us in doing these things. Um, if you follow biblical principles in a lot of ways, and if you're wise, and if you stay out of certain arguments, and if you don't bring in controversy to things, then yeah, you can become the kind of person that uh, a lot of people like on the surface. And of course, Jesus says, when that's the case, when everybody speaks well of you, what's, what's the situation? Woe to you. Woe to you when everybody speaks well of you. So the goal is not that. The important distinction is Paul is willing to preach the gospel. He's willing to speak the truth of God, and he is willing to say the hard things to people where they need to be said. So he, in removing these things, doesn't do it and then stay silent on the gospel or silent on the truth of God, which I think would be our temptation. I don't know if you, maybe you're thinking about that, um, but I know that that can be the case. Instead, Paul says, I'm going to remove all these obstacles and try to please men in the sense that I'm not going to offend them needlessly and uh, I'm doing this because I don't want to get myself in the way, not of them liking me, but of them being willing to hear the message of the gospel that I'm going to say. And then if, they're, if they hate that, well, if I'm preaching it correctly, then I can't do anything about that. But I can commend the gospel by being uh, the kind of person that doesn't give offense in any unnecessary way. Um, let me ask other examples. Yeah, Ryan. Well, that's a good example, right? I mean, yeah. you have vegans by principle and you're like, you know, the Bible says that's just, you know, God said to rise, Peter, kill and eat. You know, you guys don't know what you're doing. I mean, people will do that, yeah. right? Like, yeah. yeah. But, I, I agree with that. I'm trying to get at it. I guess that sometimes we, we set up the Yeah, I think, so there's, I mean, two things. One is, do you speak up in certain situations? And another is, do you go above and beyond what's, what's required to stand out? Um, I think the, the circumstances of speaking up would be, it would be case by case. We don't enter into necessarily every single conversation that's around us. Um, we may look for a better time and place. I mean, I think you do have to use wisdom in that and deciding where to speak on that. So yeah, it's not always going to be the case. Uh, I, think, I think we should be careful about trying to do certain things that go above and beyond and creating a sort of different, you know, whether it is, uh, yeah, like create, not a subculture, but, but doing things that, like just giving up certain things for the sake of being different, 
uh, I don't think that that really has any particular sanctifying value in and of itself in terms of our appearance and what we would look like um, or what that does. Uh, it really is doing the kinds of things that Scripture says in the midst of the world. And it may not stick out as much like a sore thumb, you know, the way that it would have in a world that worshipped idols. That's kind of up to God to determine circumstantially. Um, but there are a lot of places, you know, when, when, when we talk about the kinds of things that adorn the gospel, Titus 2 comes to mind, you know, um, wives being uh, subject to their own husbands and being workers at home and sensible and pure and those kinds of things. It's uh, workers, uh, in that case slaves, you know, being obedient to their masters, like the way they do their work is very different and distinct. Um, just godliness in general, the fruit of the Spirit being at work. I think that stuff does stand out. You know, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, where it says that you are to, uh, um, instead of being busybodies, how does he put this? Uh, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. And what he's saying is the way that you work diligently and faithfully as a Christian uh, is going to make you look different toward the unbelieving world. So I think there's a lot more that uh, Scripture does commend as far as things that we may think of as ordinary and take for granted just because they're in the Bible, but they, they really do make a, a difference and an impact. And, you know, if, yeah, so I, I don't think that going above and beyond uh, is going to be a, a helpful thing in and of itself. Um, being aware of those things and certainly um, not doing them just because the culture is doing them, not just dropping to the level of the culture. Oh, yeah, they do this. This is okay. We're going to do this. Um, and then understanding the influence that they have upon the way that we think is important too. So I think there's a lot of reasons why we shouldn't just do the same stuff that the world does all the time. But as far as um, that kind of thing being, well, you know, Christians don't do this or they don't do that, I think that's not really where I would go with that. But, so those, does that address your two questions? The two, yeah. Okay, okay, a little bit. Okay, Any, anything else that would... It does, yeah. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I'm not sure that I agree. I'm not sure that I would say that you have to go out of your way to do additional things that are above and beyond Scripture in terms of the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if you do that, then that's going to lead you to a place where you are going to be distinct from the culture. And some, again, it may be less obvious to people who are not in it. And it may even be people less obvious to people who are uh, who have a, an appearance of Christianity, you know, it really, it might, it might be less obvious, but I think the danger is becoming pharisaical, and, you know, they did a lot of stuff like that, so they would make, you know, they would go out of their way to make sure that they were not associating with these people, or they, you know, we don't do what they do, and I do think that is the danger of, of going there, is, you know, you become, 
it's about those things, you know. So, uh, and then, of course, that becomes the standard for what's holy. And anybody that doesn't do that is not holy. And anybody that doesn't do that is, you know, there's disagreement between believers and there's judging and this kind of thing that goes on. So I think that's, um, I think that's not a good path to go down. And I, I would just say, if you stick to Scripture and do the things that Scripture says specifically, you're going to stick out as much as God in his sovereign will ordains that we will stick out. Um, you know, there's the passage I always come back to, but 2 Timothy 2, uh, 19, where he says, uh, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. That, that's our calling, right? We're supposed to abstain from wickedness. We're supposed to abstain from sin and be Ill, e- eager to do that and diligent to do that. And even if some other people may um, not make it clear whether or not they're Christians on, based on the way that they act or the way they conduct themselves, you know, then that's the Lord knows. The Lord knows those who are his. It's our job to to follow him in holiness. So that would be, uh, I would just say, sticking to that. Yeah, Phil? Matt, yeah. Yeah, in some, in some places there is more of an obvious contrast and it's really hard to go a week where, like somewhere to work for a week in a particular job and not be like, oh, that guy's, okay, he's different. He may be weird. He may be, I don't know what's going on with him, but he's, why isn't he getting involved in this? Why isn't he laughing at the stuff we're laughing about? What? You know, and then of course, the key is to make sure that that's done on biblical principles and not just like, you know, your own, your own thing, your own standard or something. But yeah, in many cases, it will just be that very obvious of a distinction in other cases not so much you know in other cases it may take it may not be as as obvious because people are good at pretending and because the circumstances don't lend themselves to that so it just it just depends yeah sometimes it does philip were you raising your hand for matt or you had some too Yeah, don't grumble and complain. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, we have to remember, the, it was not Paul's outstanding life itself that won people to Christ. That's not what it was. It was the gospel proclamation. It was the message. And his, his life itself was just, let me just get these things out of the way. Let me get these obstacles out of the way. Um, the gospel, our, our holy life can commend the gospel. It's, uh, Titus talks about adorning the gospel of God our Savior in every respect. So there is this sort of, uh, you're, you're putting nice clothes on it in the right kind of way. It really is only, by the way, godliness that does that. We have a lot of other ways that we like to dress up the gospel and make it more appealing. But the only biblical way of dressing up the gospel is by godliness. Um, but even that, it's not, it is not those things. 
that commends us to people. It is the gospel itself. Those things may get our foot in the door, but they will not be uh, the thing one way or another that causes someone to believe God must uh, work in their heart in response to the gospel message. It is the gospel that is the power of God, not our own uh, giving up liberties. Um, just to make sure that you are, uh, you have your, the outline, well, you have the words here, but just uh, the rest of it, vigilance, um, the, next, the rest of the chapter, he says your life should be characterized by intentionality and appropriate carefulness. Um, Paul is very intentional with his freedoms, with his life. He's scared of where it might take him if he is not intentional, so he's not casual with his liberties because he knows what could happen with that. And he then warns the Corinthians uh, in verses 1 through 22 that certain activities come with certain temptations. You need to not be arrogant about that. And a lot of times when we think that we're just indulging in innocent freedoms, we don't recognize that there is a temptation connected with those things there's more than just the simple uh, idea of freedom. And these temptations are big problems that can lead to even doing such things as challenging, like provoking the Lord to jealousy, 1 Corinthians 10, 22. So we need to be really careful with our freedoms uh, when, that we don't think of them just as freedoms, and we need to recognize that there are in, in, inherent in some of those some potential dangers and maybe some things that for our own tendencies and desires and natural inclinations are very, very tempting and very dangerous, and they would not be good for us to participate in just for the sake of our own souls without even thinking about anyone else. Um, edification, you can see this. It's about more about building up than just doing whatever is permitted and then imitation. We'll talk about those just in, uh, in brief next time, and then uh, I want to finish up the study by just having a, a few uh, case studies, so just a few uh, sample decisions that you might make, and not to make a decision for you. Although, if you, you know, if you want me to help you with that, we can do that. So let me know. Hey, I'm making this decision, and let's make this a, a matter for the class publicly. I mean, we could maybe think about that, but really, just more a few uh, common things that people make decisions about. And I want to just think through maybe categories of what is the biblical principles that might be involved. What are some wisdom issues that may be involved? and uh, other things that you might consider. So just taking everything that we have learned and thinking about kind of how to navigate some of those most common decisions that we make. So that's the plan next time. Uh, I hope that'll be helpful. We need to be done though for this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this time together today. Uh, we pray that you'd help us to think through these matters with wisdom. They're so uh, challenging in, in the sense that they're not just uh, black and white in every way. And we ask for wisdom. We ask for uh, in continued growth in our understanding of these things. And we pray that you would use our efforts in these things to build up our fellow believers and to uh, enable the gospel to go forth with great power and that we would be committed above all things to uh, doing and proclaiming your word. We pray that you would be glorified and, and you be built up or that your church would be built up by these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.